Well, welcome to Cranford Radio. Once again, we're going to be featuring something that's unique about Cranford, and I think one of the more unusual aspects of Cranford is its history. And there's a group of people in town who are charged with keeping that history and making it available to the rest of the residents in town, as well as people who who visit the town. And that organization is the Cranford Historical Society. Why don't we start off talking a little bit about the society itself? Who wants to tell me a bit about what the society is and how you got started? Well, the Cranford Historical Society was begun by a group of men who were interested in history, local Cranford citizens, and uh, they thought it would be a good idea to have a organization where they could assemble their collections of historical objects, such things as swords and uh, photographs and writings from the American Civil War, from uh, the be- very beginnings of the township of Cranford. And um, they th- also thought it would be good to have the participation of the Cranford of Cranford's public. So. On Friday, October 14, 1927, they published an invitation in the Cranford Chronicle, which at the time was the township newspaper, and it read that all are cordially invited to attend the first public meeting of the Cranford Historical Society to be held in the Cleveland High School Auditorium on Friday, October 14, 1927, at 8 o'clock. And that was our first meeting. So this year, uh, we're approaching our 90th anniversary as an active historical society, and we're one of the oldest historical societies in Union County. Uh, We also are still continuing our mission to preserve and perpetuate the local history of Cranford. Cranford's history goes back, at least in a formal sense, from when the township was created, 1871, I believe. But the history of the township and the area certainly goes back much further. Tell me a little bit about Cranford's history before it became the township of Cranford. A group of uh, individuals uh, in uh, Elizabethtown, uh, the associates were granted 100-acre lots of, uh, of, and in 1699. And that included uh, an area that was uh, today Westfield, Union, uh, Cranford, uh, and some other areas. So, And they, these people came out and started settling the area because this was, on, on this side of the Rawway River was considered like terra incognita. You know, there were, there were dragons there. It was, it was really pri- almost pri- primeval woods. And so it wasn't until 1720 that some of these individuals first came out here and settled. Uh, the Denmans came out here and settled their 100 acres in 1720. The Cranes came out a little earlier and worked uh, their uh, land holding, uh, set up mills along the railway, but actually didn't. L- they would then go back to Elizabethtown at night. They didn't actually settle till a few years after the Denmans. But uh, basically, the area of uh, this area, even though it wasn't called Cranford then, dates to uh, very early in the 18th century. And of course, a lot of people know where the name Cranford came from, but for those who don't, where did the name Cranford originate? The uh, area was a crossroads to uh, the Wachong Mountains and down to the, to the shore towards the road to Rawway and the road to the mountains and the road to Elizabeth. And since it was near the Crane Farm, it was called uh, Craneville, this crossroads would, was known as either Craneville or Cranes Mills because, as uh, Vic had said, that 
the Crane family had a, a grist mill which was used to grind grain to make flour and a sawmill. So being uh, right near the crossroads, their name was given to the area. It was also the place to cross, one of the most convenient places to cross the river, a low spot in the river where you could walk across if there hadn't been heavy rain or you could walk a team of oxen or a team of horses and a wagon across. And that was known as a ford. So in the 1870s, uh, in 1871, when they founded the township, they were trying to come up with a name, and they decided, after much discussion, to put the two words, the Crane family name and Ford, the river crossing, together, and that's where they got Cran Cranford. Any truth to the story that I heard that uh, the railroad conductor announcing the stop, uh, that that somehow had a, a role to play? That's a very old story that was told every year by our um, historian who did the school tours for many, many years, he, uh, Dr. Homer Hall, who portrayed Josiah Crane, who uh, was one of, uh, a member of one of the founding families of the Crane family in, in Cranford. And whether it's true or not, we don't know, but the story was that in the beginning when the trains started coming through with some regularity in the 1850s, 1860s, the wealthy people who were working in New York City were going on toward Plainfield. But at the time, it was a fairly long trip. And um, they would fall asleep, and the conductor would call Craneville, and being half asleep, they thought they said, Plainfield, and they would get off the train and they would be in farm country, what was basically farm country. They weren't too happy about it. So they thought the name should have a much, it should be very distinct from Westfield and Plainfield, and that's another reason that, at least the legend has it, that the name was given to it. Why did the people who lived around here want to have their own township as opposed to staying part of uh, some of those other towns? Taxes were a part of it. They uh, felt that they were giving their property taxes to the Westfields of Elizabethtown, to these other towns that the, the town seats or centers were further away. And uh, they felt that if they could keep their taxes in their own vicinity, it would be more advantageous for them. I think that was a big part of it. And self-rule, um, they didn't want to be ruled by the, the town that was... At that time, when you're traveling by foot or by horse, Five miles away is a long distance. So I think they wanted local rule as much as anything, and that's, that's the reason. One of the things that the Cranford Historical Society does is maintains two historic buildings here in Cranford. Tell me a bit about those two buildings and how they uh, came to uh, play the, the role that they're playing today. The Crane Phillips House is on the National Historic Register. Um, it's one of the things that we've accomplished through the Cranford Historical Society to be able to have it placed on the National Historic Register. It's also on the State Historic Register, which means that both the federal government and the state government recognizes it is a building that has an historic significance and that it's worth preservation. It's a small East Jersey farmhouse uh, we believe it was built around 1840, but we're not absolutely certain as to, to the exact date. It was on the main portion of the Crane family farm on uh, Union Avenue North or North Union Avenue on the banks of the Rollway River. There was a much bigger farmhouse across the road. Uh, this little house was used initially 
by Josiah Crane, uh, who was one of many Josiah Cranes. Uh, the, the name goes back. And uh, his family gave him the small house when he and his bride were first married. And as I said, it was an East Jersey cottage. It would have been approximately two rooms with a center fire, the center chimney and a fireplace, much like the farmhouse that's currently uh, being interpreted from 1740 in Westfield, the Miller Corey House, the original portion of that. Uh, in 1870, the town began to change because the trains were coming. And Josiah Crane and his bride had, go, had grown older, they had a larger family, and they decided to sell the small house with the lot behind it, not the whole Crane farm, but just the small house with the lot behind it, to Henry and Cecilia Phillips, who were coming from Brooklyn, New York. Now, Henry and Cecilia Phillips, both Josiah and his, his wife, had grown up in Cranford and were farmers. But Henry and Cecilia Phillips were from Brooklyn, and um, when I talk to the school children, I say they were a lady and gentleman. Uh, Henry was an engraver in New York. He had his own business. And when they moved out to what was essentially farm country, even though they were at the edge of town, they did not want to live in a small, plain cottage. So he, Henry hired a local builder, and using the plan book of Andrew Jackson Downing, who's one of the first American architects, recognized American architects, he built, he changed it, uh, renovated it to become a romantic Victorian cottage. You can turn to the page in one of Andrew Jackson Downing's books and see a picture of our, our, our house. The, uh, one of the big renovations was they raised the roof so that there's two full bedrooms upstairs. You're no longer standing under the dormers. You have full height ceiling on the second floor, which was unusual for that time. They added a kitchen at the back with a, a stove, a wood or coal burning stove. Before that, they had used the fireplace in the, the center hall, center fireplace for heat and cooking. So all in all, they made a much more elegant living space than what it had been. And uh, Henry and Seal of Henry and Cecilia lived there until they passed. Henry, I believe, passed in 1911. At the time, the house was left to his housekeeper, to the couple who had cared for him, and then it was turned over to the Cranford Historical Society. And she had a perpetual, her housekeeper had a perpetual lease. Uh, she remained there, and she actually gave tours of the Crane Phillips house. At, it did not have indoor, well, it has a form of indoor plumbing, but it did not have an indoor bathroom. One of the things that we interpret, uh, that we enjoy interpreting, is the very beginning of indoor, uh, of how you got water inside a house, one method of doing that. Because, and we repeatedly tell the children that this is the age of invention. And we show them that everything from washing machines to sewing machines, there's many, many stages. They didn't come out uh, fully designed. And these are the earlier stages from plumbing to cooking to what we eat to how we dress to the machines we use. One of the big tools that we use to interpret uh, the Crane Phillips house is our costume collection. And it would be wonderful if, if Gail could speak to that because we have a very large costume collection that the, all of our visitors really appreciate. Tell me a bit about that, Gail, if you would, please. Um, the costume collection's been around, I'd say, at least 25 years or more. And um, it's a fairly large size for historical society. A lot of historical societies do not 
have a lot of clothing and textiles, we do. They take a lot of maintenance, they take a lot of space. Um, all of the objects in the collection are not necessarily worn by people who lived in Granford, though the majority of our donations do come from local residents. However, unlike an art museum's costume collection, this is a historical collection that really reflects what everyday people wore. So when we mount a historic figure, which can take like six to eight hours to put together and drag it to Crane Phillips very neatly and nicely so we don't harm anything, it always amazes people that somebody with a body just like yours wore something like that. And a lot of people relate to it and a lot of kids really just look at it and they go agog um, and you get really crazy questions. Um, <laughs> I'm not going to go into that on the radio. <laughs> um, and so the costume collection has basically two parts. There is the historic clothing collection, and we have children's clothes. We have women's clothes. We do have some men's clothes. Um, most costume collections will have m much more women's clothing than men's clothing. Women's clothing and styles changes at a more rapid rate than men's. And... Um, so it's just a proportional thing. We don't have as much men's stuff. The fact that what we've got is middle-class everyday wear is really important from a historical perspective. We don't have high-end worth gowns or some designers, but a lot of our objects do show local department stores, local dressmakers, and shops that were in this area. The second part is we have a very unique military costume collection which came about in a rather happenstance way. A lot of local residents were very reluctant to throw out, to use lack of a better word, their fathers, their grandfathers, their brothers' uniforms, and they started coming here. And what's developed over the years is a collection that spans, we do have one Civil War uniform, which is complete, but really concentrates on uh, World War I, World War II, Korea, and Vietnam. And not just men's uniforms, we have wave uniforms from the Second World War. We have a ambulance corps driver who was a Cranford resident. We have her entire uniform, and we've mounted these things. And it's a really unique collection. I just take care of it. There was a gentleman named Robert Fridlington who recently passed away who had a little cadre of men who sat downstairs in what's now the Fridlington room, and they researched everything and left copious notes as to what every ribbon, every bar, every star on these things stood for and kept it together. And all I did was hang it up and make sure they're covered properly upstairs. But it's a really unique collection because there aren't that many places that do keep military clothing. So in a way, you know, the collection has two different aspects to it. We talked about the Crane Phillips house, but the other building that the Cranford Historical Society owns is the one that we're recording this interview in, the Hanson House. Tell me a bit about the Hanson House, please. Well, the Hanson House came our way in about 1992. Uh, Chris told you that the Historical Society was founded by a group of men who were basically collectors. They had a lot of stuff. And if you can picture all that stuff stuffed into the little Crane Phillips House, we soon outgrew that space. And when I became um, involved with the Historical Society, which was late 1989, early 1990, the bulk of our collection was in a room in the basement of the municipal building. 
and if you opened the door, you could barely walk into the room. There was so much stuff in there. So we were kind of at a crisis point. We had collected a lot of really good material, wasn't organized, and we really had no place to put it. Uh, that brings us to the Hansen House. Dr. Hansen was a very well-known pediatrician in town, and when he passed away, his family wanted something to be done with the house. They didn't want to just sell it. They wanted to somehow make it accessible to the town. So through uh, Green Acres funding, the town was able to take it over, and with some wheeling and dealing, we were able to kind of negotiate with them that we would kind of take over, um, I'll say guardianship. We do not own the building. The building belongs to the town of Cranford, but we are the guardians of the building. And that really was a game changer for the Historical Society because once we had this space, we were able to really look at everything that we had that enabled us to organize our archives it enabled us to organize our costume collection and really make it accessible. Because before that, we really didn't have the room to do this. Uh, that also gave us the ability to turn the Crane Phillips House into what it is today, a living museum. Uh, and to open up the Hanson House to research, uh, to uh, we have everything now pretty organized. For a little historical society that works completely on volunteers, I think we do a great job. Uh, people come from all over the country. They either come here or they contact us through the Internet and ask all kinds of questions, and we are able to do it. I, um, When I first started, I was actually hired as the curator for the Historical Society, and <laughs> there was just nothing really was organized. So we just, you know, that was once we had this building and we were able to start organizing things and putting it into ways that made sense, that really opened up a whole new world for us because, you know, things are great when you have them, but if they're not accessible and nobody can look at them and you can't look at them yourselves, then they're really kind of useless. So we are so fortunate to have the Hanson House. And it's a building that's used not just by us, but it's kind of been a community building. We have lots of groups that meet here. Uh, we have the beautiful park outside that the Hanson Park Conservancy has done. They're kind of our partners here now. So I think this building has really become a great community asset. And it's uh, really enabled the Historical Society to work with the public more and make our collections more accessible. We have everything very well organized now. We are eight, we know what we have. Uh, one of the things we had a number of our early trustees, Carl Peterson, had a great interest in early tools. If you think of all those early tools that are sitting in the, the yard of the Crane Phillips house, those were all in a storage room in the basement of the municipal building. So we got all of that stuff out there, and we were able to use that for school tours and for tours when we are open on Sunday. So uh, this, has really, this has really been a great opportunity for the Historical Society. I'd like to add one thing uh, to what Patricia said about the Hanson House. She said that we, that we are the guardians, but we're also the preservationists. The, the house has needed, both of the houses, the Crane Phillips House and the Hanson House, have needed a great deal of brick and mortar structural maintenance. Uh, we've put historical society funds, we've raised funds, we've raised uh, thousands of dollars in grants, from both the state and the county to uh, keep the ceilings up, to keep the HVAC system in both houses, to put in, uh, renovate the kitchen, 
paint the exterior. It's funny because we worked for years to maintain the inside and the, of the, the guts of the two buildings. No one noticed. But then when we did the exterior painting on both of the houses, all of a sudden everyone in town, when we used the historically correct colors, everyone in town noticed, oh, look what they did. And we're used by many organizations in town, and we uh, basically clean up after all of them, you know? So we really are responsible for, for, we really are, what I'm trying to emphasize, we really are the guardians of both buildings. And, and we're proud to do that because we feel that's a very important part of our mission. One way I think that's a lot of fun for people to get involved with the town's history is looking at pictures. And if you've been to a Barnes & Noble in this area, you've probably seen the two images of America books about Cranford, one and two. Uh, one person that you mentioned, Robert Fridlington, was uh, the author of both, as well as Larry Furo, who was a teacher at Cranford High School. Uh, both, unfortunately, have passed away. But what role did the Historical Society play in the creation of those books? All of the photographs are from our collection, and you really should speak to Vic on this because he has organized everything and, and gotten our files in absolutely fantastic uh, shape. Uh, but all of the material in both books, Robert and Larry took, worked in the, in the Historical Society building and took, you know, worked as members of the Historical Society to put the books together. And they're all of our, our photographs and our primary source material. Individuals were trustees and Bob was the curator of collections for a long time. And I imagine that those books are just a small portion of the archives that uh, you have uh, collected here. Yes, I'm going to, I'm sure, uh, not do them justice, but the collections include photographs of people and the town. It includes uh, interviews conducted in the 60s and the 70s with Cranford residents who had recollections going back to the late 1890s all the way through on up to the, the then current date. Uh, we have people uh, folders, uh, and then we have uh, collections of materials on local clubs. We have the financial records of the township, uh, the original bill that set up Cranford, uh, Physical objects like firemen's helmets, uh, all kinds of things. So it's, there's, a, uh, there's a, a vocal and pictorial and written historical collection. There's a collection of objects. Uh, Chris, who oversees the library portion of the archives, has a great, collected a great deal of information about the town and the county and the state. We also have uh, yearbooks, so it, it's a... It allows us, when we get the questions, as Pat said, and we, we get, uh, we field several a month from people who had lived here, had relatives who lived here, wanting to know more about their family, uh, that we're able to go back uh, and uh, help them with that. And one thing that's really nice about having a, a local historical society, people know who you are, and they know that when they give you something that's very valuable to them, you're going to take care of it. So that kind of helps our collection to grow, too, because people feel confident that 
what they have is not going to just be put in a junk pile, that it's going to be here and it's going to be shared with other people and people are going to be able to use it to research the history of their town or their family. You know, the questions that we get come from all over the country. We get a lot of questions from people who are just moving into Cranford and they want to know about their house. They want to know about the street that they live on. They're, they're interested. I think people come to a town like Cranford for a specific reason. They, they like the hometown feel, and people want to know about what happened in the town before they got here. And uh, I think that's one of the best parts of being part of a local historical society, that you can help people with that. One of the neat things I've always thought about Cranford is when you look at pictures of the downtown, in particular the intersection of North Avenue and North Union Avenue, you see pictures from the 1920s and the 1930s, and while the names have changed on the outside of those buildings, and the facades perhaps have been updated a bit, it still basically looks like the same picture you would see today if you were to take a, a picture of that intersection and, and how the town really, I think, I, I always think of two things that have given Cranford some of its personality. Number one, the fact that it does have a defined downtown because of the railroad and how the businesses developed around the railroad and station and such. And, of course, the river as it flows through town. Uh, when it's not flooding, it is uh, one of the great assets. It's our friend and our foe. <laughs> All in one. But even, even you know, uh, again, one of the, the organizations that Vic is, is involved with, uh, the... Uh, Cranford Historical Preservation Advisory Board. Board. <laughs> <laughs> Always quite a mouthful there. But there are obviously a lot of historic homes as well as buildings. Cranford High School, when you look at that, to me it's, it's almost the epitome of what a high school should look like. And it's been used in some TV shows as the example playing uh, the role of a high school, uh, a high school in Ohio, a high school uh, uh, in the middle of uh, America, wherever it may be. Recently given a photograph of a Campbell Soupa, which, in which the young children who were going to eat the soup were sitting on the steps of one of the local schools. Mm -hmm. And it was sent by somebody who does not live here anymore. I don't, a family, I think their family may have lived here. I can't remember the exact story, but knew it was Cranford and sent an email and said, would you guys like this? And of course we jumped up and down and said, yes. <laughs> I think that's interesting, too, that the collection comes from many different perspectives because, as Gail says, we have some baseball uniforms. We have not only have baseball uniforms, we have some old um, sports equipment that came from Cranford West, from the high school and the schools, photographs of the team so that we can research sports. We have railroad history. A uh, portion of the collection is dedicated to the railroad. Uh, the extensive collection of the military history, but as well, we've done quite a bit of research. They've... We recently, uh, a member was able to research the veterans of the Civil War who lived in Cranford for the 150th anniversary. And uh, when he began, we knew of the four, I believe, that are buried in the circle at the Civil War uh, Memorial in Fairview Cemetery. By the time he was finished, he had found 74. And uh, several of whom were members of the uh, United States Colored Troops. And he was able to do all of their biographies and identify their homes, where they lived. And we had an Eagle Scout, uh, Thomas Mara, who photographed all the, the homes that were homes of uh, Civil War veterans that are still standing. Currently, we're working with Don Sweeney to identify the 86 soldiers on the memorial in Memorial Park. 
and we found most of their biographies and photographs, which he didn't know was would be available. Uh, it's not online, but it is in the, in the primary source material in, in Vic's well-kept archives that we were able to uh, access. Them. As we mentioned at the top, this is the 90th anniversary year for the Cranford Historical Society. Any special plans to mark that 90th anniversary? Uh, you know, of course, we're um, always planning events here. That's one of the things that we do. We have our community outreach that we do all the time. We do our school programs. We have our museum open for tours. But we are going to have a special celebration at um, Dreyer's Farm up um, on Springfield Avenue. John Dreyer is one of our trustees, and the Dreyer family has been great supporters of the Historical Society for a very long time. And we have a celebration that's going to take place up there on the evening of September 16th. And the details have not been publicized yet, but they will be forthcoming shortly. So that's our big celebration. When I first became curator, there was a cardboard carton with a stack of letters in it. And it took me two years of getting my arms around the archives and getting them organized to finally attack it. But when I attacked it, I found out they were letters from a family who lived in, uh, in Long Island. I thought, well, why are they here? Well, by chasing them, tracing them through the directory, I found out the family did move here. And then the individual, and the letters are, it's, gonna, it's about 150 of all, sent by family members to a young naval officer starting with his final months at Annapolis in 1943 and following him on a destroyer which had 11 battle stars and was exceedingly active in the Pacific, writing to Francis, or Roy as they called him, Unold. Uh, and it's funny, it's like, it's like breaking into a party line but you can only hear one side of the conversation. So the only thing I know that Roy has to say is how the family reacted to the letters they received, but it's, it's a fascinating two-and-a-half-year study of what life was on, like in the home front uh, during World War II. And so, again, you know, these, these are mold, literally molding, <laughs> moldy pieces of paper that tell a very uh, active and heartwarming story of a family and what it was doing coming out of the Depression and living with uh, all of a sudden great wages during World War II, but no time to spend them and nothing to buy, and their concern for their son who was at sea in the Pacific on a destroyer. And I think that's what's, uh, again, so appealing about a local historical society are these stories of people like you. And um, as Gail was saying, and Chris and, and Vic, all those little artifacts, things that you can hold in your hand. You know, sometimes our world right now is so ephemeral. Everybody is on their technology, and they somehow lose that human connection. And when you get to a local historical society and you look at these things, you look whether it's the clothes that people wore, the letters that they wrote, the pictures of their houses, their outhouse, whatever it was, it helps you remember that people today – 100 years ago, 150 years ago, they're people. They're just like you. And it kind of brings that human connection back. And I think people look for that. And that's what I think is so very appealing and so important about a local historical society. Uh, you know, we all know about the big things that happen, but it's the little things that most people's lives are made of. 
And that's why I think it's important that a group like this continues, and that's why I think all of us are so passionate about making sure that our historical society goes on and that these um, invaluable things are preserved. We feel it's an honor to take care of them. And like our motto says, to preserve and perpetuate, make sure that these are here for future generations to look at. Well, we've only been able to scratch the surface of all of the information that the Cranford Historical Society has collected and makes available. We're going to have a link to the Cranford Historical Society's website on this podcast, so you can go there to check it out. Of course, we encourage people to stop by the Crane Phillips House when it's open on Sundays so they can see some of this history. Chris, Gail, Pat, Vic, thank you so much for taking the time to talk with me. Thank, thank you, you for very having much. us. We enjoyed it. Fun.